This is Sonny Bunch. Welcome back to another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm very excited today to be joined by my friend Mark Graham, who is the editor-in-chief of Decider.com, a website dedicated to helping solve one of society's most pressing and important issues. What movies and shows should I watch? Uh, you can follow them on Twitter <laughs> at Decider, uh, and you can follow Mark at, on Twitter at Uncle Grambo. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that 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 tie, that. Uh, you know, Twitter handle in a second, Mark. Um, but I, 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 I love the the whole raison d'etre of of decider. You know, we we even before uh, the collapse of theatrical um, and the the rise of of streaming, decider was kind of a key. Uh, uh, site for helping people figure out what to watch in the ever expanding. Um, universe of tv and online and everything else so uh, could you i i just want to i want to introduce people to to decider like how how did this what was the genesis of decider where where how did it get started and w how has it changed uh to to be the site that it is today uh first of all sonny thank you for having me on uh, i'm a big fan of the pod and uh, it's an honor to join you. Um, yeah, so Decider has uh, been around. Decider is part of the uh, New York Post digital network, which also includes uh, nypost.com and page6.com. Uh, and the site has been around for a little over six years at this point. And it got started, um, I was working at VH1 uh, when my wife had uh, our first child. And I spent uh, a, a good amount of time trying to be a good husband. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I would, I would help wake up in the middle of the night and uh, help uh, feed my son and change diapers and all that fun stuff. And uh, anyone who has a little kid knows um, uh, it's very easy for them to fall back asleep in the middle of the night, but not so much for me. And so this was in uh, 2013. And uh, when I was up in the middle of the night trying to fall back asleep, I would do what we all do these days is doom scroll a little bit on Twitter. And one thing that I noticed at the time was that uh, Netflix was trending on Twitter in the middle of the night every single night. And a little flashbulb went off in my head. At this point in time, Netflix only had four original shows. They had House of Cards, they had Orange is the New Black, and they had two shows that everyone else has forgotten at this point. Um, but they weren't quite clearly the uh, original content machine they are today, but a little light bulb went off in my head and sort of recognized that people were using uh, Netflix and similar services to watch on-demand programming and that uh, coverage, culture coverage on the internet uh, wasn't really reflecting that. Everybody was chasing sort of the same stories. What are the, what huge thing happened on TV last night? What big movie is opening up at the box office this weekend? What were the results from last weekend? And so um, I made a pitch to the folks at the New York Post for a site that would um, cover this new sort of on-demand culture and really sort of zig where the rest of the sort of uh, culture writing around movies and TV was was zagging. So really focusing on the expanded world of streaming content and sort of home uh, home viewing. So still to this day at Decider, we pretty much ignore everything that's going on in movie theaters. Um, clearly, there's not much going on in movie theaters right now, as you cover very, <laughs> very uh, <laughs> eloquently here on, on this on this program. But that was really the genesis for 
for Decider when we launched it back in August of 2014 and still sort of the what we run with today. I mean, it's it is it's crazy how well positioned you guys are right now just because of the the state of the world and all that. But it it, it really is kind of interesting to think about how coverage of TV in particular has to change in a world of Netflix. I mean, I like, you know, there were so many great writers who people were introduced to via recaps, right? Matt Zollersice and and uh, Alan Sepinwall and uh, and and folks folks of that nature, you know, people who are recapping The Sopranos and Mad Men, um, you know, shows like Community, et cetera, every week. And then like Netflix comes along and says, "Here's ten episodes at once." How do you how do you actually how do you bring that model? to the web in this sort of world does it even make sense to are, are you glad to have something like disney plus uh releasing the mandalorian once a week instead of you know uh all all at once i mean i'm, I'm curious as an editor I'm, I'm curious kind of how you navigate that whole that whole morass yeah um great question so you know when the whole sort of tv recap thing exploded you mentioned a couple of uh great writers there i was um, actually one of the uh, early editors of vulture.com and we invested really heavily at that time. This was in the early part of the last decade, you know, 2009, 2010, in recaps and really taking that sort of um, super fan approach to TV coverage. Clearly that whole model has really um, blown up with the way that Netflix has released shows, binge watching. It was one of the big challenges of Decider and something we still try to, uh, still try to figure out to this day when, uh, a service like Netflix drops 10 or more episodes of something simultaneously, how are people going to be reading about it? So one of the things that we've sort of learned over uh, the last couple of years as it relates specifically to recaps is to focus on a couple of things. Um, one, to find really great writers and really great recappers who have a sort of dedicated audience of people who will follow them. Um, one of the people that we um, uh, do a lot of recaps with, his name is Sean T. Collins. He's a tremendous, he calls himself the original bad boy of TV recaps, <laughs> which is really, really true, but he's a tremendous writer. And so you really wanna find somebody with a strong voice and a strong through line. And how do we determine um, what to recap? We wanna try to see if there is an audience um, that will attract to certain kinds of shows um, that lend themselves well to recapping. Um, anything about teens, those tend to be really good things and shows that have really deep mythologies um, so something, for example, right now, like Lovecraft Country on HBO, um, there's a lot to sink your teeth into there. Watchmen last year on HBO is another really good example of that. Um, those are the kinds of things that we look to try to figure out if there's going to be an audience and if there's more than just what's on the surface for um, a writer or a recapper to really dig into. That's how we determine um, what to recap, because clearly it's um, not a good proposition to try to recap all of the 18 new shows that came out on TV this week alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it, 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 again, it just, it's such a, it's such a weird, uh, mix of format and release schedules and all of that, uh, in terms of how, how things have changed. I mean, you mentioned two HBO shows, Lovecraft country and, and Watchmen, which make sense to recap. I mean, those are, those are shows that like, okay, people are going to, people watch, and then they want to read about what they they saw this weekend. And it's part of the, you know, it's part of the virtual water cooler, right? Um, I, I feel like Netflix has, in a weird way, both destroyed and expanded that. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really tough to find an audience to read recaps for um, shows that people binge watch. Um, it's difficult for writers to be able to crank out all those things in advance. Uh, more often than not with Netflix, uh, we don't get screeners for all of the episodes in advance. So it's a little bit of a fool's game to try to chase that because the people who um, tend to read recaps are the kind of people who want to devour a show quickly. Um, so for us, the best recaps or the best opportunities for recaps come with shows that re that release on a weekly schedule where you can, um, again, sink into a little bit, digest what you've seen, learn a little bit more, try to predict what's going on in the future episode. Another one we're doing right now at the moment is Fargo on FX, which really lends itself well to this, to deep reads, to close analysis, to um, five things you might have missed, um, little moments that happen in the show or references that call back to um, everything in the expanded Coen Brothers universe that Noah Hawley has carved out on FX or FX on Hulu, as you're calling it these days. But those are the things that make a lot of sense for us um, and for readers for recaps right now. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned FX on Hulu, which I, I I have always considered to be a very weird and interesting branding challenge uh, for them because I like... I know what FX is. I know what Hulu is. But I I remember, God, what was the first thing that was on FX on devs? When yes. I was trying to figure out where to watch devs, I was like, wait, is it on FX? No, it's not on FX. I I, I like had to like I had to download Hulu. I was like, all right, I want to watch I want to watch this thing. But I mean, it which brings me to kind of you know the 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 broader point here, which is there is so much. There is so much uh, just to just to like figure out where what is showing on what channel and and what is playing where is is a challenge in and of itself, and I am curious uh, how you uh, you know as pioneers in this field of helping people decide literally in the name um, have have uh, kind of managed to keep up with all this and and frankly how much how much you actually watch I mean you're you're the editor. Uh, in chief, no, no editor in chief could watch uh, literally everything to figure out what to talk about. But uh, you, 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 you must be like sitting there flipping through all the channels, right? You're figuring <laughs> out what the what the best stuff is. Yeah, I, I personally, uh, so that's a great question. And what I really do is I really lean on my team. So Decider is uh, there are currently 14 of us who work on Decider across all the disciplines you might imagine. Everything from writers to social media folks to designers to our dev people who make make the site run and make it work across all the different platforms and ways that people access our content. But so, yeah, there's no way for any one person or even any real team of people, even as big as like 14 people, to watch everything there is to watch. So um, we, we try our best to sample everything. One of the things that we try to do on Decider to help uh, readers with this proposition is we've developed um, a, a sort of a franchise formula for reviews that we call stream it or skip it. We used to run just sort of straight TV and movie reviews, you know, the kinds of things that you would you would read in lots of other publications. And we saw that people weren't really responding as well to those. But when we put this sort of framing device around it, you know, which is clearly a riff on uh, Siskel and Ebert's two thumbs up kind of a thing, should I watch this or should I not? Should I stream it or should I skip it? That's really worked for us. Um, again, there's so much out there to be able to know. People want straightforward um, recommendations and a, a simple yes or no on something has worked really, really well for us. Um, in these sort of reviews, we outline 
you know, who's in the cast, which will, the, what kind of programs or movies will this thing remind you of? And we really just focus on specifically in the TV space on the pilot episode, because that's what people really use to determine if they're going to move forward. You know, we so often see on Twitter, um, TV critics saying, oh, the show gets really good at episode seven. <laughs> not, not a lot of people have um, that much disposable free time. So we really focus on that first that first glimpse, that first introduction into a new world or a new show to, to sort of base our decision on. Clearly, that presents some challenges because, uh, because pilots are oftentimes kind of wonky and writers are still figuring out who the characters are and how the universes should work. Um, but that is the best way and the way that most people dive into shows, particularly now as people are, are really completists and they want to watch every single thing starting from the very first episode. That's that's how we sort of frame up and, and try to tackle that problem today. Yeah, I, I mean, have you, uh, the the pilot versus the rest of the show problem is an interesting one. Have you, have you, is there any sort of way to do the same thing for original movies as these services have gotten more into movies? I mean, you know, with Hulu and, and Apple TV and, and Netflix and Amazon and everybody else getting into the, the game of original movies. I mean, you know, a pilot's an hour long. A movie's generally going to be ninety minutes to two hours. Uh, you know, two and a half hours. Some, some, some sometimes. Um, is there is there a a similar turnoff point that you've seen, or is it, or is this just more traditional? Like, well, you can watch the whole thing and it's good, or or it's bad, or whatever. Uh, for so for movies, the way that we cover those is by watching the whole movie. You know, a movie is a self contained experience for the most part. Um, uh, MCU stuff, I guess, excluded from that, but. Um, yeah, so we do stream it or skip it for movies as well. And the volume of movie content that's been released on streaming, both originals, meaning something that's never been seen in theaters before, and also sort of new to streaming approaches, um, those work really, really well for us, sort of equally. Like, for example, just this past weekend, uh, the most recent Terminator movie, Terminator Dark Fate, um, hit both Amazon Prime and Hulu. And it was a movie that everybody ignored when it re was released in theaters, which was in November of 2019. So about a year ago, you know, the 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 previous one, which I think was Terminator Genesis, maybe with mm. Amelia Clark, um, that really soured people on the franchise. But when this new movie hit streaming over the course of the weekend, um, I think that frankly we were one of the only sites to to offer up sort of a a, a take on it. You know, so again. Um, going back to sort of my original premise for the site, so much of the media and so much of the press follows one thing at a time. And the fact that Terminator Dark Fate came out on streaming this weekend means it's a brand new movie to a giant swath of people, particularly on sites like Amazon Prime, where, um, you know, Prime Video, where they're promoting that heavily in banners at the top of their page and, and, and using their fire hose to push people towards that content. Um, that's been a huge success for us sort of focusing on that. And, and we find that the stream or skip it works really well for movies as well. Mm -hmm. I, in terms of, uh, trying to figure out who is watching what this is, it's a question I've asked you before in person. And it's something that I continue to find really fascinating. The, the, you know, we, we live in a world where so much of our entertainment comes through streaming. You don't have solid box office numbers on these things. You don't have solid Nielsen ratings. Um, Netflix is a black box, you know, except for when they decide to release their uh, 100 million people watch 90 seconds of this thing, you know, whatever, whatever that means for for um, for our, our purposes here. 
you know, Disney Plus is more or less a black box. We have no idea what's going on with the numbers there. But you uh, have kind of life hacked this and and have figured workarounds around this. Could you could you talk about that a little bit? I know that this is there's some secret sauce involved here. I don't want you to give away all your your secrets, but uh, <laughs> I I want to I, I want to help people understand um, ways to figure out what other people are watching. If TV is a communal experience, and I think it can be, not quite in the same way theater is, but if TV can be a communal experience, how can we help people understand what other 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 people are watching? Um, awesome question. And you're right. This is all patented secret sauce stuff. So what I'm about to say, <laughs> don't tell anybody else. No, um, okay. it, it's, you know, as you mentioned, all of the streaming services are very opaque. Um, in terms of what their what sort of data is available from a streamer, and this causes media journalists um, tons and tons and tons of frustration. Um, I don't really look at it that way. Um, it, it's cool, you know, that um, uh, box office numbers are available. All those those are getting murkier and murkier even with the last couple of weeks as well. But some of the things that we sort of use um, to gauge how deep we're going to go into coverage of something. Um, a lot of people use a service called Google Trends, which people might not know about. But basically what Google Trends allows you to do is um, you can type in any term or any show or any movie or any combination of terms and start to figure out um, with relative um, uh, certainty which things are sort of more popular than others in the context of Google. Um, and, and Google is important when it comes to watching because obviously when people are watching things at home, very rarely are they just looking at the screen and focused on that, as sad as that is. Um, but most people are sort of multitasking while they're watching things. They're, they're, they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on Google trying to figure out more. Where do I recognize that actor from? Um, has this director done anything else? Um, those sorts of questions are really sort of valuable and the second screen experience has really driven that. So Google Trends tends to be a really good way to sort of, again, get a broad, not highly specific thing, um, look at exactly how many people are watching or discussing something, but but that's a good one. Twitter conversation um, is another one, but as we all know, sort of the echo chamber and um, sort of uh, doom perspective of most of the way Twitter goes, um, that's less reliable for us. Again, I don't think you saw very many people this past weekend talking about Terminator Dark Fate on Twitter, um, but people were out there searching for it. And so those are a couple of things that we use to sort of gauge something. And again, um, the other real thing that's important to us in terms of how we cover things are if our writers on our team care about something. That's the biggest thing for, for me as an editor in, in determining how many sort of resources to put towards a given show or movie. Do the people who are on um, my team, people who do nothing but watch TV and movies all day, every single day, what's making them excited? What what gets them jazzed about something? How like creative are their ideas about a given show or movie? If somebody on my team is really excited about something, um, whether or not it's come out yet, those are the kind of things I want to put chips towards. And a really good example of that is this show that came out on HBO Max in the beginning part of September called Raised by Wolves. Um, if you're not familiar as a reader, it's it was sort of, uh, it, it's a, a, a space tale about a couple of androids trying to save humanity on a brand new planet. 
It's got the Ridley Scott stamp of approval since he directed the first couple of episodes. And it was something, you know, HBO Max is, has been an interesting case. It's a cool service with lots of movies. Sonny, I know you really like it, as you speak about Big it fan. frequently here. Um, but it's not available to a lot of people. Um, but when the early screeners for that went out, two people on my team, uh, Alex Zalbin, who's our managing editor, and Megan O'Keefe, who's uh, our, our senior writer, um, they both really, really loved it and said it was the kind of thing that you'd really be able to sink your teeth into. So um, because they loved it and were so verbal about how great it's going to be, um, we really decided to go hard on coverage for that. And it turned out to be prove out really, really well for us. Um, that was a great show that I think audiences really found over the four or five weeks that HBO Max uh, released that show. And again, it's an example of something that not a lot of other sites really covered to the extent that we did, but we uh, sort of announced early on that we were going to be doing this. We worked really hard to get great interviews with the creators and stars of the show. And we really sort of tried to make Decider a place. If you like Raised by Wolves, you should read the stuff on our site. Yeah. I mean, you you raise, I I have also been talking about Raised by Wolves a lot, which I, I don't know that I love. But I do. I, I watched every episode, which I can't say about many other shows that come out now. I mean, it it, it kept my attention, and it, it I think the weirdness the weirdness of it all was was uh, really entertaining. But the um you know you mentioned you mentioned an interesting thing here, which is that HBO Max is not available on a bunch of providers, right? Roku, um, uh, Amazon I Fire think it has some issues with 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 Amazon Fire, right? Um, which like, I mean, it limits the universe of people who can actually watch or are willing to watch the program, frankly. I mean, a lot of people don't want to watch it on their laptop, right? They want to watch it on TV. Um, how do you how do you balance, you know, deciding what to cover in terms of, okay, Netflix is obviously the biggest leader here, right? It's got 115 million or 120 billion people, whatever. Um, Amazon Prime is probably second biggest, maybe Disney Plus now, I don't know. Um, uh, and then down, then like going down, down the chain, right? I mean, like, uh, you know, the Criterion channel is great. Um, I, I can count the number of people I know who have it on two hands and maybe a foot um, uh, that I know personally, I'm sure there, there are more than more than 15 people in the world who subscribe to it. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's tricky, right? It's like it's it's just just figuring out the universe of potential uh, readers has to be a, has to play into all these these considerations. Uh, it, it certainly does. Um, it's not just the scale of the audience. It's sort of how likely is this audience going to be to want to read something more about a show too? Like a, a great example is are all of the procedural things that have dominated CBS over the last however many years. You know, no one wants to read anything about NCIS or uh, whatever version of CSI they're on now. Um, those are shows that are really, <laughs> they're, they're like passively consumed by people. And so the things that we're looking for to determine coverage are sort of what's going to be actively consumed, what kinds of things lead themselves to to fan theories or um, trying to delve into more about shows where things that are mysterious and unpredictable, those tend to be the best things for us, at least to recap and put a lot of effort towards. Um, but the scale thing is, is a big thing too, clearly. Um, but with scale also comes lots of other coverage from other places. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of entertainment websites out there. Uh, I'm not breaking any news here. There are dozens and dozens that I read and look at every single day. Um, 
But you know what we're always trying to do at Decider is try to find something that that we as a team are passionate about, and and sort of the way that I've, I've structured the team that I work with, who are all tremendously talented, really insightful, and analytical people across the board. The things that get them excited tend to be, to me, the kinds of things that other readers are going to be, get excited about. And you know, we'll do cursory coverage of of the big things that everybody. Uh, every other site does, um, but where we really dig in deeper are on shows again, where we think there's going to be um, a passionate group of people who are curious to learn more. Yeah, uh, you know, one 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 of the things that is nice about Decider is that you, because of the you know uh, proliferation of older movies on services like Netflix and Amazon Prime or whatever, there there it kind of opens up a whole universe of writing for you. I mean, there was a Glenn Kenny had a great series. Um, last year about, you know, things that were uh, movie, movies that were kind of problematic. Are, are, are we still allowed to like, I forget what it was called. What was, what was the series that Glenn was doing? What Glenn Kenny's series uh, was called the problematics. And he looked back at, yes. um, at a, a, a bunch of movies that haven't necessarily aged well, or at least could run into sort of um, uh criticism uh, on Twitter, at least today, when viewed through sort of a 2020 lens. So you're right, you know, um, again, sort of like I was talking a little bit about with Terminator Dark Fate, that movie is only a year old, but it's brand new to a lot of people. And the way that uh, streaming services license, release, and promote content is something we clearly pay a lot of attention to. And, you know, old movies can do really, really well when given the right sort of push uh, through streaming providers. Um, uh, one example is, you know, the big movie on Netflix currently, as we're speaking, is Hubie Halloween, the new Adam Sandler movie. But if you look at Netflix's top 10, which is a relatively new thing that they started doing um, in the earlier part of 2020 here, uh, Big Daddy, as of today, is the number four most watched movie on Netflix. And I think that movie came out in the late 90s. Um, so, Everything old can be new again to to a certain set of people. With with this huge world of movies and TV and everything, uh, to to kind of consider what what is an what is an effective pitch for decider.com? If you're a writer and you're trying to figure out how to get uh, your your stuff published on uh, decider, what what's a good way to to uh, come to you with an idea. I'm, I'm, I'm always curious to know what editors are looking for uh, in their pitches. Uh, sure. So first thing, email is great. Uh, my email, if you want to, uh, if you ever want to pitch me is mgram at decider.com. And that's M-G-R-A-H-A-M. Uh, so the, the things that help, the things I'm looking for when it comes to a pitch um, are, are, are a couple of things. First of all, specificity is good. If you send me a pitch to say, hey, I'd like to re review this movie or I'd like to review this TV show, um, I'm gonna say no instantly um, because reviews are a dime a dozen and what works well for Decider and what works well for our site and our audience are things that are a little bit more specific. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and a good way to sort of hone in on something specific and make sure your idea has thrust and, and potential value is to think of what the headline for your story might be. Um, and oftentimes writers loathe headlines because it takes their you know, 800 or 1,000 word uh, 
uh, idea and boils it down to 10 or 15. But with the way that distraction works <laughs> and trying to catch people's attention these days, um, if you can't boil your idea down to something like that, it's probably not worth expanding at length upon. So um, I always like when people send me a pitch that has a headline uh, and maybe two to three sentences of what they want to explore in a particular piece. That tends to be what works best and where the best ideas come from. And you know, those headlines aren't necessarily what we use on the site. It's just sort of a good framing uh, device for a, a writer to be able to think about an idea and what they want to explore with it. Cool, cool. Uh, so you are doing a, a fun thing with the Paley Center uh, about the Simpsons Halloween Treehouse of Horror specials. Um, and I uh, I am very excited for this as a huge Simpsons Halloween special fan. Uh, what is what is a, What exactly are you guys doing? And what is the best Simpsons Halloween special? Putting you on the spot. Number one, what's number one? <laughs> um, uh, awesome question because I just watched uh, all 30 episodes of uh, the Treehouse of Horror over the course of the last couple of days. I locked myself in my room quite literally, uh, ignored my family and watched them all. Um, my uh, So first of all, the thing that we're doing, we deciders teaming up with Fox and the Paley Center uh, to put together um, a special that's strictly about the Treehouse of Horror. Um, it's going to be really great. The moderator is Yardley Smith, who is the voice of Lisa Simpson, and Al Jean and a couple other um, great Simpsons writers, directors, and EPs are going to be participating as part of this. Um, so, so yeah, so I watched all 30 uh, Treehouse of Horrors to date um, over the course of the last couple of days. And, and my favorite one uh, of all time is the Treehouse of Horror number four. Uh, which comes from the fifth season of of The Simpsons, and it's I don't know the the show really rides a roller coaster over the course of the years, um, but that one contains just some classic moments. Every sketch uh, in that particular episode is is fantastic um, and and really well done. Uh, they're all all of them each have their own little benefits and bonuses, um, but that one's probably my favorite full episode. I think my favorite individual segment is the shinning which is the uh, uh, parody of The Shining. Um, any groundskeeper Willie uh, 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 appearances always work well for me. Yeah, I uh, I mean, they, there is that great run of The Simpsons from, you know, season two to 10 or nine or wherever you want to want to cut it off. And each each of the Treehouse of Horrors really is uh, fantastic. I still get a little sad when I, I see the cut, the cutaway from the graveyard gags and the tombstone gags <laughs> to the you know i feel it's like the moment childhood ends uh, is when that is when that that comes up um you know uh mark mark i always like to ask my guests uh, if they have if there's any one thing that i should have asked if there's anything that they think listeners should know um about the 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 uh, business side of what they do. I, what if there's if there was one thing that you wanted to talk about here that I should have asked and stupidly did not? What what would that have been? What should it, what 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 should people know about Decider and the world of streaming and trying to figure out what to watch in this ridiculous uh, landscape of media options? Uh, I, I don't think so, Sunny. This has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the pod. You're doing a great job at the Bulwark, and 
make sure you come back and do some more writing for Decider sometime. Absolutely. I will. I will. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Mark Graham, editor-in-chief of Decider.com. I'm Sonny Bunch. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood.